Our study, as you can see on the board, is Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25. And in that context, it contains an explanation of the privilege that now belongs to the Christian people exclusively. No way it belongs to the Jew. Paul's admonition to them is to recognize the privileges in Christ uh, that were designed by God before he ever made the world. And uh, the uh, awesome beauty of them in view of the shadow of the old system. It was merely a shadow uh, that bespoke of a better covenant. So here, in uh, this particular lesson, uh, the writer combines all of the ingredients of the new system in a song of praise. Actually, an explanation of the privilege that now belongs to the Christian people. Now, as we go through this, I haven't mentioned this before, but it might benefit some. Uh, we're making a textual study. We're studying each phrase as we go through here. We're, we're uh, trying to lay it bare and expose it to where we can understand what these phrases signifies or talks about. And so, when we come to a verse, I mention a verse, we read the verse and then we discuss it. And that'd be a good way to keep your notes. You write in highlight verse 27 or whatever verse it is. And then underneath that you put all the thoughts that are being collected or that you want that we talk about of that verse. And then you put verse 28 and start with that. That might help you in the inner, uh, in uh, making an outline of our study. I just thought I'd mention that. So this section will cover only a few verses uh, because they're packed with information vital to his reader's understanding. They're packed with information to the Jew. He could understand these things because he was familiar with the old system that was a shadow. <coughs> so the new priest, the new covenant, the new sacrifice, the new sanctuary combined to bring Christians into the full exercise of the benefits that derive from them. All right, each one of them had a benefit in them, and uh, so the writer has brought them all together. The writer has been switching back and forth between these ingredients in his discussion so far in the book of Hebrews. Sometimes he mixes them together in his explanations. They do uh, uh, irregulate uh, uh, or they do interrelate significantly. But now he puts all of them together. So although he's talked about bits and pieces here and there, now he's putting them all together in regard to the benefits to the Christian. He's trying to keep the Jew from going back to the old system that had no authority, no power anymore. He'll just come out of chapter 10, verse 17 and 18 with his commandment, his comment on the termination of the Mosaical Covenant and his sacrifices. God's promise to remember their sins no more uh, belong only to the new Christian system. That was part of that... Uh, covenant that God announced to Jeremiah Jeremiah's day <coughs> their sins, this new covenant that God would make, he remember their sins no more, it had nothing to do with the Hebrew people, it had to do with the Christian God's promise to remember their sins no more belong only to the new Christian system, Hebrews 9 verse 10 spoke of the restoration of all things, the restoring of all things and that had been accomplished by Christ. He's, he, no wonder he said it's finished on the cross. He came and done the work of the Father. He restored all things back like it was in the days of Adam and Eve. It resulted in a system 
uh, of the re it resulted in the return of man to the relationship of Eden. And so now, because of Christ's work, we can come into the presence of God. We can have this uh, union with God spiritually. Not physically, because that physical uh, relationship with God will be when Christ comes and takes us and, and the bodies are resurrected. But right now, we have access unto God. We have this clear conscience because of what God, Christ done. We can enter into the very presence of God. We can come boldly because it's His plan. It's His design. And it's His love. So quite evidently, the return is experienced only on the spiritual level. This return to uh, Eden and its... Uh, relationship there and fellowship with God. Uh, it will not be accomplished on the physical or metaphysical level until Christ returns to redeem his people from the grave. But even now the spirit of man uh, in his immortal soul enjoys full fellowship with God through the combined elements of the new system. And so I'm assured that I have this fellowship with God because of what uh, Christ done and what was recorded that he done for me. And when I know that, when I have that information up here in this little knot sitting on my shoulders, I understand that God's love, his reach out for me, and I'm con convinced that he he's, uh, loves me, he's adopted me, and I can come boldly into his presence. All right, verse... 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let's just stop right there and comment on that. The Greek word for confidence there has more significance than mere assurance. The word is Persian in the Greek, and it implies strong boldness and courage. We can come into the presence of God with strong boldness and courage. It has been translated, <coughs> its best translation is the right of a free man to speak. Uh, maybe it appears a little daring, yet it is not audacious. It is not risky, especially to the Jew who always knew that he had no right in the most holy place. Now that'd be something to present that to a Jew, that he now has a right to go come into the most holy place, the very presence of God by the blood of Christ. That'd be quite awesome for him to realize that. Because all of his life and all of his father's life and all of his father's father's life has been to be represented by the high priest in the most holy place before God. Now, because of the blood of Christ, he now understands that he can come into the presence of God. He can come boldly under the throne of God. <coughs> but Christians have a right to be there, a right obtained by Christ. <coughs> and uh, the word boldness expresses the attitude with which they exercise that privilege of coming into the presence of God. The privilege results in walking into the very intimate presence of God. This presence of God is called the throne of grace in the fourth chapter in verse 16, you remember. Access to the throne room also explains that the writer often referred to as drawing near to this throne room. The Hebrew worshiper was not uh, perfected in conscience when he drew near uh, to God. That's uh, the 10th chapter, verse 1. But Christians are frequently encouraged in this book to draw near. In fact, uh, this statement is made, this admonition to the Jew was made many times in chapter 4, verse 16. In chapter 7, verse 19. In chapter 7, verse 25. In chapter 10, verse 19. And in chapter 10, verse 22. And so the writer 
continues on this admonition to the Jew to draw near to what he now has in Christ. In recognition of the benefits and the blessings, he can come into the presence of God where he couldn't before. Having already mentioned the covenant in verse 17, the writer now adds the sacrifice with these words, by the blood of Jesus. Jesus had already penetrated the symbolic veil between heaven and earth as Hebrews 6.20 says, a forerunner. He's a forerunner of you and me. You know what a forerunner is. He goes ahead for other people. That's the idea. And so he went into the presence of God for you and me and gave us access. He blazed the trail, in other words, into the throne room for Christians to follow. His literal entrance into the throne room obtains for us spiritual entrance there. And when we die, it will be total, complete. Verse 20. Uh, uh, By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. So verse 19 and 20 joins the blood and the body of Jesus as the twofold description of the sacrifice. Entrance into the most holy place is possible only by the blood and the body of of Jesus. The new way that he speaks of is one that is fresh or recently inaugurated. The living way is the life-giving way. That's understandable. The writer had said that as long as the old tabernacle with its holy place stood, there could be no way into the most holy place. And this way uh, penetrates the curtain for you and I into the most holy. And then he says, through the curtain, that is his body in that verse. And that simply means that our sins that separated us from God were born in the body on the cross. And that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. There's a total agreement there that it's through this curtain that is his body that we have access. Uh, Somebody want to turn over and read 1 Peter 2 verse 24? He He himself... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So you see that agrees with the Hebrew writer in that our access is through the body of Christ as he offered it on the cross. And that's what Peter says. Now turn over to Isaiah 35, verse verse 5 through 10. Isaiah 35, 5 through 10. (coughs) Because here, uh, Isaiah prophesied about the new way to the Jew. He's speaking to the Jew about the day coming when God would make a new way, the Christian way, the way that the Hebrew writer's talking about to these Jews right now, that they shouldn't forsake at all in going back to the old Judy system. So let's read the, the passage, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. All right, Isaiah 35. Is that 5 through 10? 5 through 10. And it says... Oh, I was, going, I was going to read it. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Ron. <laughs> Sometimes somebody reading in the audience, the only ones that can hear it is just people sitting within 10 feet of them. Uh, and if I read it up here, I've got a loud voice anyway, so it broadcasts. 
But I do appreciate you guys helping me out once in a while. It gives me a chance to catch my breath if, I, if you look up a passage and read it. But let's read this together. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Now he's talking about a future day, isn't he? It's a prophecy of what God had planned and has now come to be realized in Christ. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Now that's quite a picture, isn't it? For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Now you get the picture of that, don't you? Can you see the beauty of water breaking out in streams in a desert? Can you see the, the drastic change between desert and, and a river? Well, that's the idea that gets across with this kind of uh, uh, description. And the glowing sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the habitation of uh, in the habitation of jackals, where they lay, shall be grass with reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. Now here's this highway of righteousness that God planned uh, from eternity's side to establish, and He's in the process of establishing it through bits and pieces of prophecy that makes it undeniable in the New Testament times. All right? And a highway shall be there and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for the redeemed. So this highway is exclusively for the redeemed. It's not for the ungodly. The wayfaring man, yea, fools, shall not err therein. They won't travel this road, and they don't. That's why they tell you on the job, don't talk about religion. We don't like that. And they, they ain't having nothing to do with it. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up thereon. So you can see a lion and a ravenous beast their similarity is that they destroy, they tear down, they kill. And that's the picture here. There won't be them kind of people in the church, is the idea. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. So this highway is strictly for the redeemed. It's not for the jackal and the lion and those that tear and those that live according to their own worldly lusts. And the, rans the ransomed of Jehovah shall return and come with singing unto Zion. What made them sing? Because of the beauty of God's grace. That's what makes a man sing. That's what makes a man pour out his ardent heart unto God in worship. And there's just a statement made about the change that's going to be take place when this comes about. They'll sing unto Zion and Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's a most beautiful passage in regard to what we have in Christ, and the writer's referring to it here in the book of Hebrews that we're studying. <laughs> so Isaiah 35, verse 5 through 10, prophesied about the new way. Uh, the, that new way that Christ uh, would create. He called it a highway and a way of holiness. And he insisted that the unclean shall not travel along that highway, for that way leads into the throne room of God. They don't travel that way. Verse 21. He says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Well, let's stop right there and comment on that a little. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now the writer adds the element of the priest to those of the covenant. The most holy place and the sacrifice. 
The new completes the picture. Uh, that now completes the picture. The great priest is Jesus, the one that obtained for us the privilege of drawing near unto God, and the house of God is the church. The writer has triumphantly affirmed that we are his house if we hold on to our courage or our boldness in the Greek and the hope of which we boast. And we read that in the third chapter, verse 6. That's what it said. Only members of the church have the privilege of access into the throne room that Isaiah wrote about, that highway into the holiness of God. The Apostle Paul taught that God's household is the church of the living God. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, which merely affirms what we're saying here about this, uh, the temple. The greatness of our priest lies in the fact that he takes away our sin, which has always been the impediment to imitate, uh, int intimidate fellowship with God. And so the reason we didn't have fellowship with God is because of our guilt, our sin, knowing what we are. Christ took that out of the way. We don't have that anymore. But what about a legalist? What about someone who looks to himself to fulfill righteousness? He never is happy. He cannot be happy. And finally, he leaves Christianity in a very disdainful way because he's a legalist. Grace doesn't do that. Grace says that you've forgiven. God forgave you. Completely, totally, thoroughly. Doesn't that array lift your spirit to where you feel that you have access unto God you can come into his presence you ever run into anybody that you was talking to about religion and they cut you off by saying well uh, I could never be saved because of what I've done <laughs> they sure don't understand the grace of God do they Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Well, let's talk about what that verse said. The attitude with which Christians who draw near are as important as the purpose for which they draw near. The attitude already mentioned is that of confidence. That's the attitude that you have that causes you to draw near to God uh, or boldness. To that is now added the sincere heart and full assurance of faith. And so the confidence brings uh, along with an attitude of heart and the full assurance of faith. The sincere heart has to do with the purpose for drawing near and the purpose for drawing near is to worship. It is imperative that the worshiper be uh, transparently genuine and completely sincere in his worshipful praise of God. If there is no thanksgiving to express, no song of praise to sing, no gift of love to offer, no humble devotions to manifest, then why draw near and so those things are absolutely necessary for a man to draw near to God he ain't going to do it unless he understands these things of course that's all involved in the love of God isn't it remember that the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience so that we may serve or worship in the Greek the living God chapter 9 verse 14 that we've already studied uh, in full assurance of faith, it says, drives from the unquestioned uh, conviction that the blood of Jesus has made us acceptable in the presence of God. We have a right to be in the most holy place because of that blood. Jesus obtained that right for us on the cross because, again, as we've already seen, he's a forerunner for us. 
he ran the distance and ahead of us, a forerunner, and we follow. That's why he's our example. Since the right, since the right cost Jesus, uh, cost since the right that's mentioned here cost Jesus dearly, it would, uh, it would be a travesty, an unconscionable act of ingratitude for us now to fail to exercise the privilege of drawing near. Christians must not neglect the collective church assemblies when it gathers for worship on the Lord's day. What are you telling the Lord's day? What are you telling the Lord when you uh, deliberately stay away from the assembly uh, unless you have a valid reason, maybe you're sick or whatever? What are you telling the Lord? You're telling him that he, his sacrifice has no value to you. <coughs> It wasn't precious at all. You don't have that right and privilege. It, out of grat because of gratitude, you do not have that right. We need to understand that because we get to thinking pretty highly of ourselves, don't we? Oh, life owes me this, and this owes me this, and I, everything owes me, and everything's for my privilege and my benefit and my blessing. To hell, you say. That's exactly what you're saying. There's no gratitude in that at all. But you remember we read, read in Isaiah the, what would happen? What would happen when this new inauguration, this new system would come about? What did Isaiah say? The dumb man would begin to speak, <coughs> sing, and the deaf would have ears that would hear and rejoice. You find that very little in the church, do you? You don't find people as a rejoicing, a joyful people, a happy people, a people who has a confident assurance of salvation. They're just wondering, oh, I just hope I'm saved one day. Oh, I just hope I've been good enough. They don't have a clue about God's grace. No wonder they don't sing. No wonder there's no joy. No wonder in every expression of them, they're, they're putrefying to everybody that knows them because they live in doubt. But the man of God is a rejoicing man who once was deaf but now can hear. A man who once couldn't speak but now can. Can you speak in the name of Jehovah? If you can't, you've got a serious problem. You're claiming to be a Christian and you can't speak in view of the one that died for you? There's something wrong there. There's something wrong. Oh, but I can't speak like Merle or like Richard Rogers or like one. You're not intended to. You're not supposed to. But before God, you are to express the thanksgiving in your heart and it comes out your mouth. We don't do that. We see if it's okay with the heathen if we can speak. On the jobs, in the lunchrooms, out here in the world, we think we have to ask the ungodly if we have their permission to speak. Isn't that the way it is? Where's the boldness of a free man? He has a right to speak. He has a right of boldness not only to come into the presence of God, to speak about the salvation he has. That doesn't mean you grab somebody in the throat and shove it down their throat, but it does mean that when a conversation comes up, you have as much right to speak about your love as they do theirs. Amen. You have every right in the world. Take it. You don't have to ask them, uh, can I speak about Jesus? That's the biggest bunch. Oh, man. That'll, that'll turn your stomach. <coughs> But I like what Isaiah prophesied <coughs> there in Isaiah uh, 35. <coughs> then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be understood, <coughs> unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongues of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out 
and streams in the desert. You and I live in the wilderness, and the only waters that break forth in the streams in the desert is the Word of God, the will of God, the way of God. And if you don't see it, I feel sorry for you, because you're in a hell of a mess. Your life ain't going nowhere. It's stagnated, it's stymied, it's stayed, and you're just drifting through life from like a pinball machine. The ball just goes and hits this thing and it bounces over here and goes back up here and down here and over there. Just every, your life isn't going anywhere. But God can give you direction, course, joy, peace, courage, stamina, make you able to stand in a wicked world. And why the world don't see that and don't want it is beyond me. He mentions two progressions to draw near uh, are mentioned here. The first is having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. That's the verse we're studying. The heart relates to the conscience of the worshiper. The worshiper's conscience has been uh, mentioned by the writer other times in, in this book. In chapter 9, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 14, Chapter 10, verse 2. Chapter 13, verse 18. When you study a book like Hebrews, it's good to take some of these words and look them up in a concordance and it'll tell you exactly where they've been used and how many times they've been used. But I, I, I can say this with some authority. Most Christians don't go to that trouble. They just go listen to some fool like me and they think, oh, that'll do it. There's my worship for the week, and there's my Bible study for the week. No wonder they're weak and sickly. Because you ain't going to get the, the, the nutrients you see. You need all week. How many times do you eat during the week? Well, wouldn't you say on an average of maybe three, two to three times a, week, a day? How many times do you feed the spiritual man? Maybe, maybe, you might have a thought that crosses the scriptures once a week. No wonder you're dying on the vine. No wonder there's no fruit there. No wonder there's no joy, no hope. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Those were the words of Jesus on the Mount of Temptation, Matthew 4. And so the sprinkling is done by Christ, the priest, with his own blood. Now you remember we studied earlier about the nature of the priest sprinkling blood in the Old Testament? It was a cleansing picture, wasn't it? And it, it uh, bespoke, it foreshadowed of Christ and his blood being sprinkled over us to cleanse us. All right. Moses had sprinkled the old covenant people with the blood of calves. They were the copies of the heavenly things, according to chapter 9, verse 19 to 23. They were a copy of the heavenly things. But the heavenly things themselves had to be sprinkled with the blood of better sacrifices than those, according to chapter 9, verse 23. And they were by the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 2 makes mention of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. It is the sprinkling of, the, of his blood that cleanses us from a guilty conscience. The sin is gone, the conscience is clear, and the joy and the peace precedes all of that. Now, I don't know where you will worship in the rest of your life. 
you may move from here and worship somewhere else in the church of Christ. But take note that you can look into a man's face and you can see his frustration, his fear, his anger. Jesus said, the eyes are the light of a man's soul, and they are. And you look deep into a brother's eye, and you see if there's any confidence there, if there's any assurance, if there's any uh, understanding that his sin has been taken away, and he's pure as God is pure. He's clean as God is clean. When he gets to feeling that, according to the Scriptures, 1 John 3, verse 7, or 1 John 4, 7. can't remember now. I think it's 3, 7. Then you found somebody that is happy, somebody that attends the worship service with, with uh, dedication and commitment. And he understands that it's not only for his benefit, but he is a benefit to everyone else. Remember what God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3? He said, I'll be a blessing to you, and you be a blessing. And he was because he was God's man. Is God's man a blessing? Well, it's just another way of saying that you're a light set on a hill, isn't it? Isn't it? Synonymous. A light set on a hill and a blessing to other men. Because they delight in seeing your joy, your peace that passes all understanding. They begin to see these qualities about you and they want them. They don't know where they're going to lead exactly, but they want them. So, the pure water that's mentioned there is simply the waters of purification. And of course in the New Testament, baptism is often referred to as a washing. Acts 22:16. You remember Ananias was sent to Saul of Tarsus? He said, why tearest thou? Rise and be baptized and do what? And wash away your sin. You know what he said? That's exactly what he said. Ephesians 5, 26 says the same thing. Titus 3, 5 says the same thing. And so it is clear that the blood of Christ is sprinkled on the heart at the moment the body is washed with pure water. Of course it is um, it is the blood of Christ that cleanses the conscience from acts that lead to death. That's chapter 9, verse 14 that we've already studied. And in this, in the, this context of 10.22, the sprinkling and the washing are joined together in one act. Even the Apostle Peter affirms that baptism now saves you. For in that act, a man makes his appeal to God for a clean conscience. It is at the baptistry that the, the uh, candidate asks God to apply the blood of Jesus to cover his sin and cleanse him his conscience. And so without the sprinkling of the blood and the washing of the body, there will be no privilege of drawing near to God. And whatever worship might be offered, would never be accepted by God. You got a whole world out here uh, in the religious sector worshiping God. And it's not accepted unless they've been washed with pure water, baptism, and having their conscience clean. There is no... They can go to church a billion times. They can live to be 10 billion years old, go to church and never miss a service in their worship to God. But their, their worship is not... Is not accredited, it's not heard, it has no effect at all, except to the damning of their own souls. Why? Because they never was born into God's family. They still have their sins with them because the blood of Christ has never cleansed their conscience. Where do you contact the blood? Revelation 1 verse 5. We're washed from our sins in his own blood. That's what it says. Well, where do I contact the blood then? Acts 22, 16. Why tearest thou? Rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So when you're baptized, what do you do? Your sins are washed away. So baptism is the when your sins are washed away, and the blood of Christ is the what that washes away sins. They ain't never got that. 
And so they could go through uh, audacious uh, presentations of worship to God and it's not heard or observed or ha has no benefit in it. And we see a world lost in the denominational sector because their preachers, their doctrine, their dogma will not tolerate baptism. And that's the only entrance into the kingdom. There's the cleansing aspect of Christianity. That's the moment we, our sins are blotted out, washed away. And that's what the Hebrew writer's pointing to, to these Hebrew people. He's showing them the privileges that they have in Christ that they never had under the old system. He's showing the superiority of this new system. And the fact that this was God's intent and design before he ever made the world. Verse uh, 23. Oh, I did want us to look back to Isaiah, the 35th chapter, and notice about the blessings that we just read about there. Isaiah 35. Notice in verse 8, 9, and 10 of that context. This blessing that he speaks of here, the joy that he speaks of, uh, is only for the redeemed. And who are the redeemed? Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The blood that's contacted in the baptistry. And all of that was signified in the Old Testament by Moses sprinkling the blood of animals on the people and on the books and on everything that was holy under that covenant. Verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Well, here's another uh, attitude accompanying those who draw near in the firm boldness or uh, in, in firm holding of their hope. The hope ultimately involves the return to Christ to redeem his people from the earth and to the grave and from the grave. Chapter 9 verse 28 says, "This is the hope that anchors our soul." In Hebrews 6 and verse 19, it is hope based on the unchangeable character of God, confirmed by His verbal uh, promises that we that were backed up by His oath. Chapter 6, verse 17. The drawing near that's mentioned there must manifest confidence in the fidelity of God. Nobody's going to draw near to God without recognizing the confidence and having confidence in the fidelity of God. Nobody is. Where does the Bible begin in relationship to God? Chapter 1 of Genesis, the first book. And verse 1. In the beginning, God. Don't never forget that. God wrote that book for you. Every word in it is inspired of God. It's the breath of God, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. And because of that, how does God begin in instructing you the way He wants you instructed? He begins in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Oh, that's just talking about the creation. Well, there's a good place to start, isn't it? Isn't it? Where does the atheist begin? Same place. Only he says it was an accident. It was a space fart. And it all come into existence. Once upon a time it just happened. And everything come into the unity of what we call a cosmos. It's not a chaos. It's a cosmos. A chaos is where things work against one another. It's like throwing rocks in your transmission and you hear this and then it don't go anywhere because it's done tore itself apart. 
Cosmos is when all the gears work together. When nature and everything in nature, as we call it, works together for man's common good. But they, the atheists would have you believe that one time you was a slime in the sea, you swung in a tree, and that's me. That's a short version of their doctrine, their dogma. That all this just happened by accident. So you can see then that you, no one can draw near unless they've got confidence in the fidelity of God. Can God be trusted? Hadn't he proved that? How old are you? And can God be trusted? Has he been feeding you? Has there ever been a day when, well, you might out of your stupidity uh, missed a meal or two or throw it away or whatever, but God's provided, hadn't he? Hadn't he? Does nature speak of, a, of the infidel, uh, the, the uh, Infidelity of God? No, it speaks of the fidelity of God. God is for man. He made us. He takes care of us. He feeds us. He delivers us. He loves us. And to draw near must manifest confidence in the fidelity of God. He promised Christians that they would enter his rest in chapter 4, verse 9 through 10. God's promises are sure. For he cannot lie, chapter 6, verse 18. The plea of the writer is that his reader not give up uh, on the ex uh, exercise of his privileges to draw near unto God, to come into his presence. And neither must they lose their faith in Christ, who is the source of their hope. They would be hopeless if they return to the now dismantled first covenant if they now return to the desert where there's no streams. God's the one that puts streams in the desert. We read that in Isaiah 35. He's the one that makes uh, the lame man leap with joy. He's the one who causes the deaf to now speak out of gratitude to the grace of God. Like Jeremiah said, your word is like a fire in my bosom, and I cannot contain it. You know, every, every uh, stove has a smokestack. Here it is. And if God is in your bosom, you can't contain it. No more than a stove can. And your mouth will speak the words of God, the way of God, the will of God, the love of God. Let's stop right there. Time's up. And we'll begin there at verse 24 next week. Is this, uh, what, what is the date?
Oh, that's why I plug up the company. Yeah. Anyway, plug it. 